The setting was a stage in Savona, Italy, a northwestern port town south of Milan. The opera to be performed that particular evening was L'Amico Fritz by Pietro Mascani, with a fresh-faced 21-year-old named Giovanni Foley included among the cast members. Though he had only a supporting role, Foley earned quite a bit of attention for his performance, This should not be surprising, after all, this performer would go on to conquer the world, becoming one of the most popular singers of the first half of the 20th century. He shattered box office records during his many trips to the U.S., where he became one of radio's first megastars, and was, according to one account, the best-paid concert singer in history. If you can't recall any particular singer named Giovanni Foley, That's because it was a decidedly operatic stage name for the acclaimed Irish tenor, John McCormick. Welcome to Dead Wax 78s. I'm your host, Sean, and, you know, we're going to talk about old-time music, old-time performers, and all that lost talent. This episode, we're talking about John McCormick. Still considered to be the standard by which all Irish tenors are measured, John McCormick had a long and much-honoured career on the recital stage, the opera house, and the radio. His Victor and HMV records sold in the hundreds of thousands, and he even found his way into two films. John Francis McCormick was born on the 14th of June, 1884, in Athlone, County Westmeath, Ireland, the second son and fifth of the 11 children of Andrew McCormick and his wife, Hannah Watson. His parents were both from Scotland and worked at the Athlone Woolen Mill, where his father was a foreman. Young John showed an early interest in music. When he fetched the coveted Irish singing prize, he was discovered by Vincent O'Brien, When he won the coveted gold medal of the Dublin Fish Coil, he knew where his future was to be. After studies in Italy, he first sang in opera in 1906, and in 1907 he became the youngest leading tenor at London's Royal Opera at Covent Garden, singing with the likes of Melba, Tetrazzini, and many others. He later ventured to America where he sang with the Hammerstein Manhattan Opera in 1909 and then sang periodically with the Metropolitan Opera from 1910 to 1918. Here's side one, Celeste from Ada, Odeon Records, 1909. Mm-hmm. 
Everybody who owned a talking machine in these days was sure to have along with Caruso's Pagliacci some John McCormick's Mother McCree. I know I probably got three of my own. He sang up and down the land and was always good for a benefit for the Irish, the Red Cross, the Catholics. Now to some, McCormick is simply Ireland's greatest musical artist. Others have compared his massive U.S. popularity in the 1920s to that of Elvis Presley's in the 1950s. Now, McCormick also paved the way for later crooning stars such as Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. But while audiences and critics remain fascinated with Elvis, Sinatra, Crosby, and the rest, McCormick's light was dimmed somewhat. In terms of sheer talent and popularity, however, McCormick should always be remembered, especially by the Irish in North America. Now, in 1929, McCormick had one of his most important concerts, this one in Dublin. That year, 
the Irish were celebrating the 100th anniversary of Catholic emancipation. The world, of course, would soon be sinking into the Great Depression. Ireland itself was only a few years removed from the grueling Civil War. But McCormick was able to transcend these divisions, blending art, faith, and history through his powerful music, which one critic has said, speaks from the heart to the heart. So who exactly was John McCormick? And how did a fellow named Giovanni Foley become the first in a long line of popular Irish tenors? And what role did he play in cultivating Irish-American pride? McCormick first gained U.S. attention while performing at the Irish Village section of the 1904 World Exposition in St. Louis. His engagement was short-lived as he objected to the stage Irish aspect of the show, so he quit. But not before he met the love of his life, Lily Foley, also a member of the troupe, whom he would marry two years later. It was a performance by another towering artist the following year that left a lasting impression upon McCormick. At London's Covent Garden, McCormick watched Enrico Caruso in La Boheme. The best lesson I ever received, McCormick later said. Here's side two. I hear you calling me 1927.
Fundraising activities on his behalf enabled McCormick to travel to Italy in 1905 to receive voice training by Vincenzo Sabatini in Milan. Now, Sabatini found McCormick's voice naturally tuned and concentrated on perfecting his breath control, an element that would become part of the basis of his renown as a vocalist. In 1906, he made his operatic debut in Teatro Chibrera Savona, and the next year he began his first important operatic performance at Covent Gardens in Mascani's Cavaliera Rusticana, becoming the theater's youngest principal tenor. In 1909, he began his career in America, where he sang and recorded French operatic areas in the Italian language. For all his later devotion to the concert platform, he was, for albeit a relatively brief period, in essence an Italian operatic tenor. So in February 1911, McCormick played Lieutenant Paul Merrill in the world premiere of Victor Herbert's opera, Natoma, with Mary Garden in the title role. Later that year, he toured Australia after Dame Nellie Melba engaged him. Then at the height of his operatic career, age 27, as a star tenor for the Melba Grand Opera season, he returned for a concert tours in those subsequent years. By 1912, he was beginning to become involved increasingly with concert performances, where his voice quality and charisma ensured that he became the most celebrated lyric tenor of his time. He did not, however, retire from the operatic stage until after his performance of 1923 in Monte Carlo. Although by then, the top notes of his voice had contracted. Famous for his extraordinary breath control, he could sing 24 notes on one breath in Mozart's Il Mio Tesoro from Don Giovanni, and his Handelian singing was just as impressive. Here's side three. It's a long way to Tipperary, a 1914 Victor Red Seal. London came an Irish man one day, as the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. 
Ringe Paul of Piccadilly turned and let her swear. Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to them there. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart right there. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know. songs were always a favorite of McCormick's. Given the event of the day as well as his Irish background, it makes sense that McCormick was the first well-received version of It's a Long Way to Tipperary, recorded after World War I broke out in 1914. McCormick also recorded nationalist songs such as The Wearing of the Green, which cost him some British fans. But the singer's devotion to his adopted country when he became a U.S. citizen could never be questioned. McCormick donated thousands of dollars to the U.S. effort during World War I after America entered the war in 1917. This begins to illustrate why McCormick may have been so popular among Irish Americans. 
McCormick made hundreds of recordings, his best known and most commercially successful series of records being those for the Victor Talking Machine Company during the 1910s and the 1920s. He was Victor's most popular Red Seal recording artist after tenor Enrico Caruso. In the 1920s, he sang regularly on the radio and later appeared in two sound films, Song of My Heart, released in 1930, playing an Irish tenor, of course, and as himself appearing at a party scene in Wings of the Morning, 1937, the first British three-strip Technicolor feature. In 1927, McCormick moved to Moore Abbey, County Kildare, and adopted a very opulent lifestyle by Irish standards. He also owned apartments in London and New York. He hoped that one of his racehorses, such as Golden Lullaby, would win the Derby, but they never did. McCormick also bought Runyon Canyon in Hollywood in 1930 from Carmen Runyon. He saw and liked the estate while they were filming Song of My Heart, and McCormick used his salary for this movie to purchase the estate and build a mansion he called San Patrizio, after St. Patrick. McCormick and his wife lived in the mansion until they returned to England in 1938. And by 1938, McCormick had more or less retired. McCormick originally ended his career at the Royal Albert Hall in London, then only performing at his son's wedding in 1941. Here's side four, one of my faves, The Minstrel Boy. Oh, love 
Now poor health finally forced him to retire permanently. Ill with emphysema, he bought a house near the sea, Glenna, at Booterstown, Dublin. After years of increasingly poor health and a series of infection illnesses, including influenza and pneumonia, McCormick died at his home at Booterstown on the 16th of September, 1945, and he's buried at the Dean's Grange Cemetery, St. Patrick's section. Renowned for lending his superior diction and breath control to a whole range of operatic and popular song repertoires, his legacy clearly lives on. The Irish tenor is now a beloved brand on the international music scene, thanks to the trail first blazed by John McCormick. Thanks for listening. This is Sean, and uh, we've been listening to Dead Wax 78s. Um, you know what? I will catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.